Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Pius V, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll be seeing St. Pius V today, so that's why I invoke him. All right, let's get into this. A recap of last week in just a few words to know where we had what we'd done. So last week we saw the first of the councils not to be accepted by the Orthodox in the East, the Council of Constantinople of 689. So we saw that. Then we saw the three literal little Lateran councils, one, two, and three, all in the 1100s disciplinary councils, not much doctrine there. Then we saw one of the great councils, Lateran IV in 1215, and we're going to see the fifth Lateran today. Lateran council means it took place at St. John Lateran, the basilica there in Rome, which is where the palace of the Pope used to be. Then after that, we saw the two councils of Lyon, which tried to deal with reunion with the Greeks. We'll see more of that today, and a second attempt today. And then the last council we saw was the Council of Vienne in what is now France. It's just south of Lyon, up the Rhone Valley. And that was a council where the, the, the Templars were suppressed and learning Oriental languages to convert Muslims and Jews and others was recommended. Now, this is the point where we are. And at the point where we left our story, the popes have moved to Avignon, and it's called the Avignon Papacy. It's going to last about three generations. All those popes will be French, and they are going to live in a part of the papal states that's landlocked within France, called the Comte Avenissin. And that uh, little area is going to thrive because of the presence of the papacy. And indeed, to this day, uh, Chateauneuf-du-Pape, which is a small village near Avignon, still makes good wine and still honors the Avignon popes and the Avignon anti-popes, by the way, as well. They don't really distinguish between the two. There was a, we'll see an Avignon anti-pope today. But then we are going to move back to Italy eventually, and trouble is going to break loose. There's going to be a council in Constance, which is on the German side of Lake Geneva. So that's council number 16. We're also today going to see council number 17, and that is the council named after three towns because it moved Basel, Switzerland, and then Ferrara and Florence in Italy. Then we'll see Lateran V, which takes place at the time of the splendor of the Renaissance popes, and that splendor was not all for the good. That's in the early 1500s. And then 
the fourth of the councils we see tonight, which is the last we'll see tonight, and ranks among the greatest, if not perhaps the greatest, ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, the Council of Trent, which in many ways is going to set and forge and reform Catholicism in the way in which it will be until Vatican II. And that is the kind of Catholicism a lot of us here were born into or remember from our own parents and grandparents. So let's get on with it. The Council of Constance. So as I mentioned, the popes did come back from Avignon. It was Gregory XI. He was elected in 1370 in Avignon, a Frenchman, who in 1372 says, I should really go back to Rome. And two women are going to urge this return. St. Bridget of Sweden, followed by St. Catherine of Siena, great mystics. And they both have been badgering the Pope, sometimes in very forceful ways, to go back. And finally, yes, he gives in. Okay, so 1377, triumphal entry back into Rome. The Pope is back. The people are mad with joy because without the Pope, Rome has completely decayed. It's swampy climate, brigands, thieves. No one's there to police the place. The popes are back. The people are happy. And then he dies, Gregory XI. So there's a conclave to elect a new man, 1378, and elects an Italian. Now, this conclave is going to be, to say the least, tumultuous. I'm not going to go into all the details, but the Romans really wanted, if not a Roman, at least an Italian pope. They were tired of the French, and they were afraid a Frenchman might just leave and go back to Avignon again. They storm the palace. Anyway, long story short, they do elect an Italian. And because there was some question about the validity of this election since there'd been a riot and perhaps there'd been pressure, the cardinals write a letter to the few cardinals left in Avignon, because they didn't all move, to tell them, we're very happy to tell you that we have serenely and after mature reflection confirmed our election of Urban VI, join us in rejoicing that we have a Pope in Rome as well. However, they will perhaps regret their election. In fact, they will, because it turns out that he is zealous for church reform. And if there's something that's been a theme for us in this particular series of lectures since Lateran I, it's that the church or church men need reform all the time. And Urban VI was just a man to do this, but the circumstances were not quite right. He was tactless. He demanded asceticism from the cardinals. They, they should not live as well as they'd been living. And by the way, all of these problems will have to wait until Trent and after to be fixed. They were accustomed to living like great lords with armies of servants. No, and no more eating fancy food either. He called Cardinal Orsini, one of the mighty cardinals of the time. The Orsini family was one of the great families. He called him a half-wit and even waved his stick around and threatened to knock Cardinal John of Limoges on the head with it. The cardinals are not happy with this pope. What do they do? The French ones among them, which is the majority, go to a town in the north of Italy, Anani, and they decide to hold an anti-council, a council of their own, if you like. They declare that the see of Rome is vacant and that Urban VI was elected invalidly. The Italian cardinals join them. 
Even a Spanish cardinal, Pedro de Luna, joins them. And Catherine writes to Pedro, because he was the least corrupt of them, or so she thought. St. Catherine of Siena says, be a man and stand up to that council, that fake council, come back to your true pope. But they do elect an antipope, who takes the name Clement VII. And then that antipope is going to have several successors. Now we have two popes. And people in Europe do not know who the true pope is, because the same cardinals who voted for the real pope, Urban VI, now tell you, no, 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 that, didn't, that wasn't right. We're really voting for Clement VII. Different countries will have to make their choice. It's a real turmoil. And so that didn't fix it. So there's yet a third party of people back in Avignon who depose the two apparent popes and elect one instead of the two. But it doesn't work. It makes things worse. Because in fact, now we have three men who claim to be popes, and they're all very convinced that, that's, that they are the one. This is what we call the Great Western Schism. And the council I'm gearing up to here, the Council of Constance, was uh, initiated for the specific purpose of solving this problem, the three popes problem. Now, and by the way, the one who's the third one who's elected is the very same Pedro de Luna I just mentioned to you. And there is, in fact, a Chateauneuf du Pape wine called Clos de Pape, I think. And it has the picture of this of Pedro on it, Benedict XIII on it. They still love him, even though he was never really Pope. Okay. So that's kind of the descendants of the thing. So all of Europe is very concerned now. Who's the real Pope? Who's the real Pope? And the idea is broached, and this is conciliarism, namely, we, the bishops and the abbots and the theologians of the world, should call a council, and that council should depose the popes, one of them being the right one, and we will elect a new pope, and we will tell him what to do, because this papacy thing isn't working anymore. That is what we call conciliarism, the notion that a, pope, that a council of the church is superior to the Pope and can judge him and depose him. The emperor, his name is Sigismund, and we're going to see him again because he's one of the few emperors actually to have, to have been around for two councils. Sigismund, the Holy Roman Emperor, and John the Twenty Pope John the Twenty Third. Now, some of you may be scratching your heads and saying, "Hang on, I remember John the Twenty Third. That's not the one I mean. I'm talking about the false one. In fact." The last one to have had the name John is this John the 23rd, and it's precisely because he was an antipope that no pope after him dared take the name John until Papa Roncalli, okay, in 1958. So this is the wrong John the 23rd, but still mighty. And he had the majority support in Europe. Most people thought he was the pope. As an aside, Wycliffe in England, who was kind of an early Protestant, he saw through John the Twenty-Third and never believed he was the Pope. He sided with the real Pope, so he was right about that at least. So Emperor Sigismund and fake Pope John the Twenty-Third call a council, and this is the Council of Constance. It was an imperial city, meaning it was directly under the authority of the emperor, no feudal middlemen, and they call it in December 1413. Now remember, this is not the real Pope. This council has not formally been convoked by a real Pope. There's a huge attendance. This was, uh, I don't know, it was like a, one of those big concerts 
outdoor concerts where you see, as far as the eye can see, there are people. That was constant. It was completely overrun. There were people from all different countries. There were theologians, abbots, everything. The front runner was John the Twenty-Third. He was the one who seemed most likely that he was the Pope, although he wasn't. And I'm going to skip the details, but this council, pseudo council, decides that John the Twenty-Third must be deposed, and they do. I'll read it to you in in English. The Most Holy Synod pronounces decrees and declares the Lord John to be removed, deprived, and deposed from the papacy. So they depose a man whom they believe to be the Pope. And then this council issues a bunch of decrees, each more conciliar than the next. And one of the things they, they demand is that there should be an ecumenical council all the time. So there should be one. They say, after this one, there'll be another one in five years, and then in seven, and then for the rest of history, there should be an ecumenical council every 10 years. Okay, so it would turn the council really into a kind of a permanent parliament superior to the pope. It would be like a parliamentary monarchy, like England or something, except bishops instead of the parliament. So and so we have no pope. The other two are not around. Well, so as far as the council is concerned, there isn't really a pope. Now we need to resolve this. Gregory the Twelfth, the true pope. I'll write his name since he's the real one. And he's a good one, too. What Gregory XII does, he sacrifices himself for the good of the church. Through his minister, Cardinal of Ragusa, he has this read out. I, John Cardinal of Ragusa, so there's the cardinal representing uh, Gregory XII at this meeting, by the authority of my aforementioned Lord the Pope, that's Gregory XII, convoke this sacred council. So what he's just done is to turn a random assembly of churchmen, which is all it was formerly, into a real ecumenical council convoked formally by the Pope. So now it starts. Now we know there's going to be a true council. I authorize and confirm all that it will do for the union and the reform of the church and for the extirpation of heresy. And in the same breath, this cardinal announces that Gregory Twelfth is resigning from the papacy. So now we have a real council has begun, and we really no longer have a pope. And two years later, it's going to take a while, but there will be a consistory, um, a conclave, I think about the conclave, at which they vote for Odo Colonna. The Colonna are the other great family of Rome, Orsini Colonna. He takes the name of Martin V, and he starts reigning as pope, in November of 1417, he confirms the council. Now, remember, this council has all sorts of weird teachings in it because they continued issuing conciliarist decrees after Gregory Twelfth had called it. So there was a lot of good in this council and also some bad stuff. How do we sift through it? Here's what Martin V did. He confirmed the council to the extent that it acted as a true and proper council. In other words, he said, everything that council is a council if it's a council. And to this day, theologians have argued and debated as to exactly which sessions of this council are correct. If you pick up kind of the, the official collection of decrees of the church in matters of faith and morals, 
they say, at least the five last sessions are a true council, but not before. Other theologians try to... So it's a bit of a mess. But one thing is for sure about this Council of Constance, namely, none of the reforms envisioned, all of which were very needed, got anywhere. And the con this tendency, this conciliarist tendency, remains. The only thing the council did of any lasting uh, import is that it condemned the Bohemian theologian and professor of theology in Prague, Jan Hus, for heresy and burnt him. They'd given him safe conduct all the way from Bohemia. He came, he defended his ideas. They asked him, do you really believe all that? You really believe that councils and popes can make mistakes? Do you really believe that the Bible is the sole authority? Do you really believe that uh, the church is only made up of the elect, not of all the people you see here before you? He says, yes, that's what I believe. And they say, well, that's all wrong. And they burnt him. And that's going to cast a shadow down the line. In one of the things this is going to do, because John Huss, by the way, was a reader of Wycliffe, whom I mentioned before. That's the lineage there. And then a lot of Bohemians, this is the Czech Republic today, will follow John Huss. And there's going to be what is known as the Hussite War. These Hussites are going to cause all sorts of trouble, not only in Bohemia, but also around in the Holy Roman Empire. There are going to be defenestrations and things. And one of their requirements is they say that you haven't received communion unless you receive communion under both the species of the bread and the wine. And in Latin, the expression there is sub utraque specie. And for that reason, that particular uh, outlook, the particular idea is called eutraquism. And those who follow it are called eutraquists. Those who believe that if you don't receive both the, well, I, I, the appearance of bread and the appearance of wine, you haven't really received communion. And that's going to linger, and I'll come back to that. And so not surprisingly, so that's Constance. Not surprisingly, it would take only 13 years before we have another council. And the emperor is the same at Sigismund. This time we have a new pope, though. So we're moving to the next council, the 17th. I'm going fast because I want to cover as much of Trent as I can, and we've got another council to go. So the pope is Eugene IV. He succeeded to Martin V. He was the nephew of Gregory XII. So he's from a papal family of Rome. And it is called in uh, northwestern Switzerland in July of 1431. And this is the council that has a bunch of names. It's called Basel, Ferrara, Florence. I'll give you all the names right now, along with the date that it begins, 1431. And I'll give you the end date when we get to it. It's going to be a bit long and messy. And it was called to deal with the Hussite War in Bohemia. And in this, it was successful at first. It's interesting, it had a very bad beginning in the sense that it's called by the Pope, by Pope Eugene IV, but no one shows up. So the Cardinal in charge of running, it looks around, no one's there. He writes to the Pope and says, what do we do? Do we cancel? And so the Pope closes it, but they went ahead anyway. In fact, while they were having this fake council together, I guess, and so, well, they renew some conciliarist decrees of Constance. Some of them had been at Constance. They call the Pope in to give accounts. And the Pope, although he saw that this council was taking a considerate turn, was talked into suspending that he was going to dissolve it. 
and he withdrew his dissolution, in part thanks to the insistence of uh, St. Francis of Rome, said, no, no, you have to go ahead with this, and others. So he did. And what the council did so far was to achieve peace with the Hussites. And one of the ways they did that is to allow the Bohemians the custom of receiving communion under both species. This custom had died out in the church for a few centuries now. St. Thomas Aquinas was still aware of people receiving under both species in his day. So that's early 13th century. By now, it had kind of stopped happening except by the Hussites. And the Council Basel says, well, there's nothing wrong. So we'll allow you to continue to receive under the species of wine. And a lot of the Hussites were Orthodox Catholics who just insisted on that one thing that kind of went along with the Hussite generals who themselves might have been not really Catholic anymore. But just granting them that appeased it. This was a great success for Basil, and it kind of made the Pope look weak because he hadn't had a hand in that much. Now, the men of Basel are pushing for conciliarism still, and they consider themselves to be a parliament. And as any administration, they try to get as much power as possible. They try to deprive Rome of any income from taxes. They try to enforce new election regulations. And it's not very good. Now, meanwhile, another item on the agenda, we've dealt with the Hussites, was reunion with the Greeks. For historical reasons, the Byzantines or the Byzantine leadership were willing to come to the council and discuss reunion. And the Pope said, yes, that's a very good idea. Why don't we have it in Italy, nearer the coast, so it's closer for them who are coming from Constantinople, as opposed to having go inland all the way up into Basel in Switzerland. The people of Basel said no, the Pope said yes. Two delegations were sent to Constantinople, one from the council, one from the Pope. Not very edifying, but finally the Greeks say, we prefer Italy. And Eugenius won that particular arm wrestling match, because it is an arm wrestling match between this council and this Pope. So they do go to Ferrara now. Now, what is this Greek reunion business? Well, the Osmanli Turks are pressing upon the Byzantine Empire, which doesn't have much longer to live. John VIII, Emperor of Byzantium, is open to reunion with Rome, with the church, I mean doctrinally, in part because he hopes that'll cause the Westerners to open a crusade against the Turks and help him out. And so they agree on Ferrara and they come over. The men of Basel don't come, and in fact, they continue their own council. So the Council of Basel is no longer an ecumenical council because it's moved to Ferrara. Only the first 25 sessions of Basel are considered ecumenical. Beyond that, they went more and more conciliarist until they deposed Eugene IV and elected their own Pope, Felix V. And at that point, whatever civil authorities were in favor of Basel withdrew because the last thing anyone wanted was yet another schism, yet another anti-pope, and all the difficulties that led to Constance. So that's Eugenius, Eugene, I mean, the fourth is looking good, and he's going to have great success at, at Ferrara. Uh, on the 9th of April of 1438, so we're seven years into this council, there are sessions on the union with the Greeks. The Greeks are there. The emperor's there. The Patriarch of Constantinople is there in Ferrara. His name is Joseph. 23 metropolitan bishops, delegates from Alexandria, from Antioch, and Jerusalem. Even the Archbishop of Kiev, we all know where that is on the map now. It's been in the news. 
from Rus, he is there with a big retinue of Russian theologians and priests and people, or say Rus, Russians, this is before there were any of these divisions, as well as many scholars and others. In all, there were 700 Oriental Christians of one authority or the other at this amazing Council of Reunion. And there were debates. I mean, this, there weren't, uh, these Greeks didn't come hat in hand subserviently, and the Latins would, did not lord it over them either. either. The way it worked is that the Greeks were allowed to open the debate by explaining what they thought in Latin theology was wrong. And the Latin theologians took their points, and you make some good points, allow us to answer. And they really thrashed out the issues until they could reach some kind of an agreement. But before they could do that, the Pope Eugene IV, who in a great ecumenical gesture, had agreed to foot the bill for all these Orientals, these 700 people to be in Ferrara, well, he ran out of money. He couldn't pay the accommodations anymore. And just at this point, the city fathers of Florence intervened and said, if you move the council to Florence, we'll pay for their accommodation. It was a bit like jockeying to be the Olympic city, you know, for economics, it's good to have all these people in your town. So Florence gets in and does that to Florence. And that's where we're going to be now. This. And so the move is in January of 1439. And there the agreements are reached. And this is a, a, a wonderful event. The Greeks agree that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son. They agree in the existence of purgatory. Although the word purgatory isn't used, but the description and definition of it is, and they sign it. They agree to papal supremacy over the whole world. They agree that the Pope is the father and teacher of all Christians. They agree that for mass, you can use both leavened and unleavened bread. That had been one of the things that all the day, way back in Phocius's day, they accused the Latins from being Jew Jewish because we use matzo kind of, you know, unleavened hosts. This council repeats the order of precedence of the patriarchates, Rome first, and then Constantinople, which we'd already granted to, to Constantinople earlier on. So Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. All but one, and it was the representative actually of the patriarch of Alexandria, not to get into detail, but that's an old story in terms of uh, Alexandria wanting to be ahead of Constantinople. But they do sign it, all but one sign it. And there's a bull, meaning a document with a um, gold, a, a drop of gold on it stamped. That's the, what the bull is, called Letentur Celi, which is Latin for let the heavens rejoice. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. For the wall that divided the Western and Eastern church has been removed. Peace and harmony have returned since the cornerstone Christ, who made both one, has joined both sides with a very strong bond of love and peace, uniting and holding them together in a covenant of everlasting unity. That is the first paragraph of the Bull of Union of this council. The Latin version of it has 115 signatures. The Greek version, read out by um, the Archbishop of Nicaea, his name was Bessarion, who would later live in Rome as a cardinal of the Roman Church after the fall of Constantinople to the Turks. 
he reads out the Greek version and 33 signatures are there. These are the top guys, you know, headed by the emperor's own signature, the emperor of Byzantium. So that's wonderful news. The church is all united again, breathing with both lungs and all these things. There must have been some misunderstanding because one of the Russian delegates, he was in the entourage of the Archbishop of Kiev there, said, the Latins are super happy because they have been pardoned by the Greeks. So that's his view. He thought the Latins were happy because they'd been pardoned by the Greeks. There may be some truth to that. Also, it's not just the Greeks, but also if you look at the documentation for this council, you will find Coptic and Armenian agreements passed with, or oh, and Ethiopians, the, there are agreements passed with the Ethiopians and the Armenian Christians as well. The Armenians came all the way on camelback to this, and there this council uh, outlined that there are seven sacraments, that matrimony is a sacrament, that there are two natures in Christ. So even some Monophysite people from way out east in Armenia came and were reunited to the church. This is a great triumph for Eugene IV and for this council. Alas, I'm afraid I have to tell you it was short-lived. When this Byzantine delegation went back, they could not convince the monks in the monasteries or the people that the Romans were okay after all now. And then the Turks take Constantinople less than 20 years later in 1453. And the Turks according to the habit of, of the normal mode of operation of, a, of an Islamic government, they bring the religions under heel and start putting pressure as to who gets named bishop and things, and they only favor the anti-Roman party, and anti-Romanism is going to be more or less set in stone in the Orient, where the clergy wear the uniform of a Turkish civil servant. Now, but some good comes out of all of this too. So many Greeks were, had now seen Rome. And by the way, the West is looking a lot better than in the days of Phocius in the ninth century. The Westerners are now civilized people once again. They're not just Frankish barbarians wearing wolf skins, which is kind of what they still were during the Carolingian Empire. Now it's Renaissance Italy. And they said, well, these, these Franks, as they sometimes still call them, this, they're pretty civilized. And so some stayed. And then after the fall of Constantinople, a lot of these people fled to the West, like Cardinal Bessarion, whose house you can visit in Rome to this day. And with them, they brought their libraries with Plato and Aristotle and the Bible and the fathers of the church, all in Greek. And a lot of the, these Oriental priests, if only to make a living, give Greek lessons to these very avid Renaissance Italians until we have a rebirth of the knowledge of ancient Greek in the West, which adds that facet to the Renaissance. And for 73 years, that's it. So that was the 17th council. 73 years later, now we're moving to the council of Lateran IV. Uh, five, I bet you, beg your pardon. Lateran IV is in 1215. Now we're going to look at Lateran V, which assembles in 1512 and lasts until 1517. This is going to be kind of a, a missed opportunity kind of a council. The Pope who calls it is Julius II, and it's continued by Leo X, uh, the Emperor's Maximilian I. And I should tell you that 
Julius II is the third of the three Renaissance popes we think of when we think of the corrupt papacies of the Renaissance. Is Alexander VI Borgia, who had seven children. So this was a kind of a low point for the papacy in terms of morals and things. Now, what precipitated this council? Well, there's a war between France and the papal states. And the king of France, Louis XII, you know, they're in the field in northern Italy. And Julius II, by the way, is the soldier pope, he had full armor, big white beard. Louis XII had suborned a few disgruntled French cardinals to convoke an anti-papal council in Pisa in 1511, that sounds familiar, called the Conciliabulum, the little council of Pisa. And they just pull out all the documents from Constance, the conciliarist ones, and say, no, these are part of a real council too. So in, in response, and they vote for their own pope. Uh, no, not this time, it didn't go that far. This encouraged Julius II to call a council of his own, and that's Lateran V. And it is a magnificent council in some points of view. It is a true papal council along the lines of the old Lateran councils, called by the Pope, guided by the Pope, and its decrees are promulgated in the form of papal bulls. Now, what did it do? Well, it, it canceled, nullified, declared null and illegitimate this fake recent Council of Pisa of 1511, and from a dogmatic point of view, it did do one thing. There was one Renaissance theologian who had maintained that philosophy alone cannot prove that the soul of man, that the human soul is immortal. He said, no, if you read, the, if you read Aristotle, Plato, it's quite possible, Aristotle in particular, you can conclude reasonably that the soul is not immortal and you do need revelation to teach you that. And this, by the way, just as an aside, it's a classic theological question in general, where is the limit between what human reason alone, unassisted by grace or, or revelation can know, and what is above that line that has to be revealed to you? And theologians have disagreed of what's above and below that line. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a book on this called the Summa Contra Gentiles, and there are other works as well. Usually people, everyone agrees, okay, the Trinity, that's above reason, that's revelation. But that the world has a beginning, that most theologians would say you, you could reason that through reason alone. And indeed, our dear scientists in the 20th century have achieved exactly that result. The Big Bang Theory confirms what, you know, by reason alone, we've reached it. Although it is a priest who discovered the Big Bang, but he didn't do so by reading the Bible. He did so by just looking at the stars. So much for what it did, okay. But it is what it did not do that marks out this council. It failed to undertake the needed reforms of the church. It did nothing against some of the more glaring abuses of the time. And I will give you a list of these. One and two of these abuses are linked. One of them is what is known as the accumulation of benefices benefices. What does that mean? A benefice simply means an ecclesiastical posting, right? Being a pastor of a parish, being chaplain of a hospital, being bishop, being abbot. That is what a benefice is, and it comes with an income. Cumulation means collecting them. There were bishops who had many dioceses. 
there were abbots who had many abbeys. And, well, you can't be everywhere at the same time. And so what this meant, through the accumulation of benefice, you did not have residence. So another abuse was the abuse of non-residence, namely a bishop not even living or ever setting foot in his diocese. And accumulation leads to non-residence because you can't be everywhere. And usually they would either pick their favorite place to be among their benefices, or they would even live in the court in Rome and never once in their life set foot in their dioceses or their monasteries. They would just delegate responsibility to the vicar general or to the prior or whatever. And you can imagine, and these men were supremely wealthy because they had these streams of income. Remember that monasteries had a lot of land with income, you know, from, from, uh, from agricultural produce. And so they lived like princes in Rome. And it is to them, I mean, we can thank them for the beauty of Renaissance and Baroque Rome as we see it today. And they had armies of servants who didn't do much all day. Lots of people getting paid to do nothing in their entourages. So all of that is going to have to come to an end. So Julius II, as I mentioned, opened this. Leo X is the pope who continues this council. He's the son of Lorenzo the Magnificent, Magnificent, Il Magnifico, if you're into Renaissance. He was a great patron. He was the patron of Michelangelo. He was the patron of Botticelli. That was the father of Leo X. This was not a man born to reform. So nothing will come of it. It ends in March 1517, and that very same year, a somewhat obscure Augustinian monk in Saxony, in Wittenberg, nails his 95 theses against indulgences, against certain kinds of penance, against this and that, and so forth. And that is Luther. And so that's, that year is kind of an annus horribilis. This council that doesn't reform anything ends, and just at that moment, Luther becomes famous. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of Lutheranism, but know that from this day forward, Luther will become better. This is Martin Luther, right? It's going to spread through Germany, through the Holy Roman Empire. It's going to lead to war. And it is going to kind of wake up, really, people in Rome, the Pope and the Cardinals and a lot. They're going to say, we can't take this for granted anymore. All right. And even uh, during Lateran V, one of the well-known Renaissance bishops was there said, the axe is at the, at the trunk of the tree right now. And if we don't do something, it's going to go badly. And it did. And so now we get to the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, which lasts, it has three periods because it gets interrupted twice. And it's going to be from 1545 to 1563. Trent is a town in northern Italy. It's, in fact, within the Holy Roman Empire. And this council, from the point of view of both doctrine and discipline, is perhaps the most important council of them all, historically. Now, the Pandora's box that Luther had opened was the issue of the time. And the principle, without getting into the doctrines of Lutherism as such, the overarching concern is that the individual Christian who has faith can simply by himself determine what the truth, what revealed truth is. 
And so that opens the door to Calvinism, Zwinglianism, Anabaptism. And then, you know, just open, well, I used to say this. I don't know if people can do this anymore. But if you open the, the yellow pages in a U.S., I think Canadian too, a phone book, you open the yellow pages at church or religion, and you see these all these different denominations. That goes to this idea that the individual Christian can determine what God has revealed independently of any church authority, of any council, of any pope. All right? But at first, the church is all about dialogue with Luther, and Luther is invited to give an account of his beliefs, and he does, before, you know, the, the emperor, who's Catholic, and before Catholic theologians, and they, there are debates. And what Luther, in fact, has a defensive maneuver during his own trial by Thomas Cajetan, this is before the council, had appealed to Pope and council, although he later would deny the authority of either one. But ultimately, he denounces the condemnation of Jan Hus. He said, the Council of Constance was wrong in condemning Jan Hus. And then finally, decreed that, decreed that his own his only authority was the Bible, sola scriptura, as interpreted, of course, by himself. But he did along the way say things like, the emperor should call a council that can tell the pope what to say and what to do. So there's some conciliarism there on, they're going on. Ultimately, though, the whole Catholic church system is denounced by Luther, and he say no councils, no pope, no Aristotle to be taught in philosophy, none of that stuff. But it's going to take a while for the popes to come around to calling a council because they're a bit afraid of councils. I mean, you can see why, particularly if all these now Lutheran bishops were to come down. So finally, though, Paul III, who reigns from uh, 1534 to 1549, tells the emperor in 1536, okay, yes, I'll call a council. And there's going to be two abortive attempts that go nowhere. So anyway, it becomes a, a kind of a, a big mess. There are some attempts at reaching agreement, nothing works, until finally Trent is converted. But things are delayed because there's a war in France still. Once peace is established, they can finally get Trent there with the intention of breaking the Protestants in war, because the emperor is at war with the Protestants. And the idea that the Pope and the emperor have is, if we can defeat the Protestants in battle, then they'll have to come to the council, and then we can debate these new doctrines. But it's never going to work out. Anyway, so Bull of Convocation, December 1545, and it has a twofold agenda, which it will stick to. First item on the agenda, a more precise definition of Catholic dogma. And the reason for this, of course, is in response to these new ideas, Luther and others. And number two, to reform the church herself. Now this, we've heard this, Lateran one, Lateran two, Lateran three, Lateran, all the councils say, we must reform the church. Trent is finally going to do that. So the proceedings begin, there are sessions, more and more bishops come, the thing is firming up. And it begins with a statement of principle. It says, first principle, the apostolic traditions are to be received with the same reverence as sacred scriptures. So that is, first to say, we're not going with Luther on this. Tradition is to be received with the same reverence as scripture. This is not a very precise formulation, but it does say the Bible alone doesn't cut it. The canon of scripture, by the way, is defined once and for all. So far, no ecumenical council had ventured to promulgate the entire list of books that are, in fact, inspired in the Bible. 
This one does it. The Vulgate version of the Bible, as trans translated by Jerome way back fourth century, is declared to be authentic, meaning adequate for dogmatic proofs. You know, it's just saying this version of St. Jerome, you're not going to go wrong, wrong if you use that. And who gets to vote? That had been a big question at Constance, by the way. The theologians wanted to vote. The kings wanted to vote. Here, he says, no, it only makes sense for bishops, generals of orders, or representatives of monastic orders to vote. No proxies, no letters, no laymen. And so it goes. And it's very well, it's a very disciplined and well-organized thing. The way they would have is, is that there would be three stages for anything. First, you have the theologians come and give talks and lectures on whatever point that we're going to define. Then there was a general congregation of only those who could vote. And they could express their wishes. And they said, well, I'd like it to, to be more precise on this. So I think we should, those who could vote, so bishops and abbots and others, could actually di discuss the text of the decrees. And then the third step was the solemn session when they actually voted on the decrees. All right? So that's kind of the, the agreement. And so now let's get to the teachings of Trent. Very early on, fifth session, it defined original sin, that man inherits original sin. So that was against the Pelagians who say that man does not inherit original sin. But it also added that original sin is completely remitted through baptism against the Protestants who didn't hold that. Sixth session has 16 doctrinal chapters, all on justification. Now, my dear friends, we're not going to get into a long discussion of what justification is and what the differences are between Luther, Lutherans and Catholics. That would be worthy of a lecture series all by itself. And I know just the man, by the way, Kelsey, not me. If, if you ever want to do that, <laughs> he could, I could give you the name of a wonderful man who studies Luther very extensively. And so I'll just give you the gist. These are the statements in this session. The human will cooperates with grace. Grace, however, precedes the entire process of justification, and it makes human merit possible. In other words, through receiving grace, we can do good, which is itself meritorious. Now, it's grace rewarding grace, but it's still the acts that we perform that, that are meritorious. The Lutherans really don't agree with that at all. Man is indeed sanctified through grace. In other words, we do become saints. We are changed by grace into something better. Be ye perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. We can do this through grace. And that's what, those, only those two. And some theologians say that if this definition of justification had been promulgated back in Lateran V, that is to say before Luther went too far, we might have dodged the break in Christianity that was caused by the Reformation, as they call it. Alas, I mean, better late than never, I guess, but the harm was done there in Saxony and other places. And finally, at this session, the obligation of residence is promulgated with penalties if you don't obey. See, that's the thing. A lot of these councils, and this is an administrative weakness, if you promulgate recommendations, Without a punishment, people do it if they feel like it. This one says, yeah, if, if, you, if, you're not res if you're not present in your diocese for three years in a row, you'll lose that diocese. Oh, well, then I'll, I'll be there. Okay, that's the kind of thing it does. 
Seventh session. But if you're going to be there, it means you can't be elsewhere, obviously. So the next session says, oh, and by the way, a bishop can only be bishop of one diocese. And this was very hard to get the bishops to take because a lot of them lost you know, 80% of their revenue this way. But by this point, everyone agrees, okay, reform has to start with us. We have to show the way, and they do. The seventh session also reminds everyone that there are seven sacraments, as it had done with the Armenians back in uh, Ferrara, Florence, but here it's and it promulgated. Also, it promulgates as doctrine what is known as ex opere operato. And what that means is that when it comes to the sacraments, the mere doing of them by the proper minister and all these things is effective. So if the proper minister of baptism baptizes you with the proper kind of, of matter and form, then baptism has indeed received, original sin and any other sins you may have committed are indeed forgiven, and you do receive the gift of faith. The worthiness of the minister doesn't matter. You can be a little baby who doesn't, you know, who doesn't understand what's going on, and it still works because it's ex opere operato. So that's mentioned there for the sacraments. And then there's a break in the, the proceedings, the first of the breaks. The council for a while moves to Bologna. The defeated Protestants said they'd come to the council. Okay, we'll come, but only if he's back in Trent. And if the Pope is not the one to guide it, and if the decrees that have already been, already been promulgated can be debated all over again with us among the debaters. And, and the council said, well, no, I mean, we've defined these. Furthermore, we didn't make these up. This is what the church has always believed. You can't just see. So it's not going to work. Anyway, back in Trent after this small intercession, it's called. And this session, this second period is 1551 to 1552 under Julius, now the third. The doctrine of the Eucharist is promulgated. Transubstantiation actually happens at Mass, whether anyone receives communion or not, and whether there's anyone else besides the priest there or not. It really does happen. The question of eutroquism is postponed. Should people receive under both form? We'll discuss that later. And we're going to have to wait, really, until after Vatican II for that to be resolved. So some of the things you have to wait. Penance, confession, and extreme unction are sacraments. Auricular confession, meaning individual confession to a priest is necessary. It defends, you know, the juridical character of absolution, the necessity of satisfaction. You do have to at least intend to perform the penance imposed on you. This is all very non-Luther. And extreme unction, the anointing of the sacred court now is indeed a sacrament which Luther denies. Now, finally, at this point, some Protestants do show up. They ask for safe conduct, and they specifically say, and by the way, none of those John Huss safe conducts, okay? We're not coming to get burned. And the Roman and the Tridentine authorities say, yeah, don't worry, this time, no, we're not going to burn you. And that, that, they didn't burn any Protestants. And it, some of them came in very good faith, particularly from Brandenburg, and they accepted the decrees of the council that had been formulated so far. So really, they're accepting, at this point, Catholicism. Others, however, when they showed up, made demands saying, no oath to the Pope for bishops. And they said also, by the way, we'll agree to be there and participate so long as it's understood that the council is above the Pope and can judge the Pope and can depose the Pope if needed. In other words, conciliarism. And of course, the fathers of Trent are going to say, no, we're not doing that. 
And they also wanted another debate of doctrines. That's not going to happen. And then they leave because there's yet another war in the Holy Roman Empire between Protestants and Catholics and things getting hot, they leave. And now we have yet another break, three popes in a row. And during this break, we have a great pope who himself was kind of opposed to continuing the council, Paul IV. He was a tough, tough man. But what he did do is enforce the decrees already promulgated and one of the things he did, and this is a magnificent scene, he, uh, he called all the cardinals together. And he told the cardinals, I want you to come to this meeting with all of your benefices on a sheet of paper, all listed. Okay, so they do so. And then he had them, and he had them one by one, give him the customary greeting, which in those days was the kissing of the papal foot. And they had that, and, he, and he, would, he took that list from them. He said, pick one. You're going to take one of my benefices from me, Holy Father? No, 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 no. Pick one to keep. I'm taking the rest. And so he took all these archdioceses and dioceses and monasteries away from these men and then filled these vacancies with a bunch of excellent, on-fire, young, learned, intelligent priests. And that, finally, I think, is what got the ball rolling in terms of reform, you see? And it took Paul IV to do that. He, he was a tough guy, and you'd have to agree with everything he did, but this he did. Anyway, on the Paul IV, we, he did finally reopen it, and here we have the last session, the last period, 1562 to 1563. That's pretty late. And these are the last sessions. They're the, they're the 20s, 21st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th session. These are the last sessions. And it tightens up some things. It does say that Christ is equally present under the species of bread and the species of wine, which means you cannot impose the cup on the laity. You cannot say that they must receive it. That's as far as it goes. It also tightens up some rites of the mass, but then ultimately it leaves to the Pope the decision to, as to whether within the mass the chalice should be given to the people as a rubric, and the Pope ultimately is going to say no until after Vatican II. Although he will permit it in Bohemia and Austria, because that's where the Hussites were, and we didn't want a new Hussite war. As long as the Hussites got to receive from the cup, apparently they're happy, so we'll give that to them. It says that the Mass is both a sacrifice and a memorial, not just one of those two. The 23rd session will speak of holy orders as a sacrament. Residency is once again imposed strictly. Most importantly for the rest of the story, it mandates the establishment of seminaries in the dioceses. Until then, the education of a, of a young man to become a priest was haphazard, and there was no universal standard. This is, every diocese must have its own seminary. And St. Charles Borromeo, when he goes to Milan, this is, a, he was, I mean, he's an extraordinary man, understood, but emblematic of the Council of Trent and what followed. He was the first bishop of Milan to set foot in that city in 80 years. So that, in other words, non-resident stops there. And he establishes a seminary. And seminaries are going to be all over the place. Even the bishop of Goa in India sets up a seminary all the way out there for Indian kids in response to this. So this is very important. Now, finally, we're going to have a well-educated and well-disciplined and formed clergy. So the priests are going to be better, and that really is going to be 11 
for the church. Marriage is declared, it's repeated that it's a sacrament, that it is indissoluble. Because the Protestants had begun to say that if one of the partners committed adultery, that could dissolve the, the marriage, so the innocent party could marry again. Trent says no, but it says it. I'm not going to get into any other canon this deeply, but just very quickly. It does not say, now, by the way, the way it's organized is that, that every session has a number of chapters which proposes a teaching, and then that's followed by a list of canons which condemn the opposite error. If anyone says X, anathema sit, okay? When it comes to marriage, it says not. If anyone says that matrimony can be dissolved by adultery, anathema sit, it doesn't say that. Why? Because it did, because if anathema sit basically means you're a heretic, okay? It's because the Greeks held that adultery, the schismatics, held the, or, you know, the Orthodox held that adultery could indeed dissolve your marriage. So instead, Trent, and this is ecumenical, said, if anyone says that the Roman church is wrong when she says that marriage is indissoluble by adultery, let him be anathema, because the Protestants had openly said the Church of Rome is wrong in this, whereas the Orthodox hadn't really paid any attention and hadn't mentioned Rome, you see. So it was a way of saying, look, Greeks, you're wrong, but we're not going to call you heretics because we still hope for a reunion. Get the idea? So that was a nice flower. There's more to be said there, but 25th session, purgatory indulgences, the veneration of the saints and of their images, all of these things are declared good, and it's wrong to condemn these things. And finally, the Pope confirms the decrees in 1564. And then we have the reforms, just two more minutes. So this defined doctrine in the face of these new ideas in, in Germany, definitively. It really got the reform going, the reform we've been waiting for centuries now, and it worked. It clarifies the duties of their cardinals, bishops, all the way down to deacons, subdeacons. And it's going to be St. Pius V who enforces them and his successors all the way down to Vatican I. And the decrees are sent all over the world, to the Congo even, to Asia. Everyone gets these in the church. It promulgates a catechism. It's called the Roman Catechism for Parish Priests. And it outlines the teaching of the church in very simple and very pastoral ways so that even priests who are kind of ignorant could avoid making mistakes from the pulpit or in catechizing the children. So it provided a uniform catechism for the world. The Tridentine Missal is promulgated in 1570, so-called Tridentine. It's not quite right to call it Tridentine because it's not as though they wrote a, a liturgy at Trent and then promulgated. It's simply, it was a tightening up of the existing liturgy of, this, of the papal court as it had been used for centuries before. All it did say though, is this is a good book to say mass from. We recommend it. If the books you use in your diocese, in your churches, in your monastery are more than 200 years old, you don't need to change anything. Keep your traditions. So the French did, the Dominicans did, Carthusians did, all these, everyone who, the, the, the Milanese did. If, but if, the mass that you're using is less than 200 years old. The idea here is that uh, some Lutheran practices had crept in some, in some places, and this was a way of excluding it. If it's younger than 200 years old, there could be some weird stuff in there. So just use this new Roman Missal, 
but otherwise it was never imposed. It's not like one first Sunday in Advent, everyone in the world has, okay, now we're using this new book the Pope has told us to use. That's not how it happened at all. That would happen at a later reform of the liturgy, which we'll deal with perhaps next week, time permitting. So I'm going to end here with quoting what Vatican I, next week, Vatican I, Vatican II. This is what Vatican I, 1869, says about Trent and Alinda. The providence that God deploys for the good of the church showed itself with shining evidence in the great fruits that the Christian universe has drawn from the celebration of the councils, especially the Council of Trent. Thanks to this council, not just Trent, the most holy dogmas of religion were defined with greater precision and presented more broadly. Errors were condemned and stopped. Church discipline rose up and was fortified. The love of knowledge and of piety were increased among the clergy. Seminaries were opened to form youth for the holy militia clergy. Lastly, the morals of the Christian people were restored through the care taken to instruct the faithful better, that's the Roman Catechism of Trent, and to invite them to a more frequent participation in the sacraments. Furthermore, the bonds that united the members of the church to her visible head, the Pope, were strengthened and a new vigor was given to the entire mystical body of Christ. To this council are due the increase in religious orders. There's going to be an explosion of new religious orders after Trent. The birth of other pious institutions and also the perseverance of the tireless missionary zeal to propagate the kingdom of Jesus Christ throughout the universe, even unto the shedding of blood. Indeed, the post-Trent church is going to be the church of evangelizing the globe. It's going to be, the I think, really, one of the great golden ages of the church is going to be, the, as we call it now, the Tridentine Age. And that's it for tonight for my lecture. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Pepino. That was fantastic. A lot of information. And yeah, that was incredible. So looking forward to next week as well. All right. So it looks like we have some questions coming in, Dr. Pepino. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay, great. All right. So the first question here is about the catechism. They have come to understand that there are many people these days who appeal to the Catechism of Trent as more right. authoritative or magisterial than the current one. Could you kind of speak to that? How authoritative is the Catechism of the Council of Trent, or the Catechism of Trent, rather? You know, should we be using that to kind of look to? Well, I think they're equally authoritative, and they, they're different in style. The, the Catechism of Trent is a lot more precise than the other one, I think, in part because of its audience, which is priests, who then are to use it, you know, to preach from. Whereas the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I think, is for the whole people of God. And so it's in a simpler presentation. Another difference, of course, is that the Catechism of the Catholic Church includes doctrines that had not been promulgated at, at the time of Trent. So the Immaculate Conception and the, the Assumption of Our Lady are not presented as doctrines in the Catechism of Trent, but they are in the, in the current one. So that's wonder. And not to mention uh, the teaching of Vatican I, 
the the doctrine defined there of, of papal infallibility. So from that point of view, the current catechism of the Catholic Church has more doctrine. And it also incorporates some of the language of Vatican II, obviously, which is more pastoral and less theologically precise than the Catechism of Trent. So if you use the Catechism of Trent alone, what it says you're going, is going to be said very precisely without leaving any room for misunderstanding, but it's not going to have everything because of, of the later promulgated doctrine. So I would recommend kind of having both. I wish I could recommend a, a good translation for the Catechism of Trent the only one I know is a bit dated, and the English is. I'm, I'm, I just read it. the Latin, however, is a monument of, of Renaissance Ciceronian Latin. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is easier to read. I would I would look at both, really. To to that's what I, I would do. Wonderful, thank you. Another reason that we should all learn Latin, so we'll have to yes, have you back uh, yeah. to. <laughs> if you, but my dear, if you if you can read the Catechism of the Catholic, uh, the, the Trent Catechism in Latin, you, you're doing really well. It's really, whew. yeah. yeah. And that, from that point of view, I can tell you the Catechism of the 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 Latin there is meh. I mean, it's translated into Latin from French to begin with. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it Diane? Am I pronouncing that correctly? One of our panelists. Yes, I see you have your hand raised. Go ahead and... um, Yes, hello, mm -hmm. Diane. My question is, well, you explained that a lot of doctrines were defined more elaborately in Trent. Yes. But I am curious, as a Catholic, I always get questions about transubstantiation and why it was defined. Was this because there was another heresy that the council... Yes, no, very good question. So... Transubstantiation, the word itself was part of a the promulgation of the doctrine of the Council of Lateran IV back in 1215, you'll remember. Trent had to pick it up again precisely because Luther rejected it. Luther rejected it because he thought it was too beholden to Aristotelian metaphysics, this discussion of substances and accidents. And he used other words and other understanding. For Luther, Christ was truly present in the Eucharist, so that's good, but also so is bread and wine, actual bread and wine. So it's both. And um, that's not something that quite works metaphysically, but he said it. And so he rejected transubstantiation, a term that had been promulgated three centuries before. So that's one thing. And then other Protestants went even further afield than Luther. Calvin, Zwingli, and others said, well, no, actually, Christ isn't even there in that sense as well. And then you get to the Anabaptists, for whom it's merely, well, they all ends up being a symbol. So Trent had to reaffirm um, that truth. And by the way, it's not a zero-sum thing. It is quite typical for a later council to repeat what a former council has already defined. It's not as though doctrines have a shelf life and they decay and then you have to renew them somehow. You know, no. Uh, it's it's just proposing it again and reminding people of a truth that has not decayed, but manifestly, people needed reminding. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Doctor. We'll take another one from our attendees here. This question is asking, is it fair to classify Protestantism as a, quote, new type of heresy? 
Is that how the council fathers at Trent would have viewed the Protestant revolt? Or did the errors of Luther, Calvin, and others fall into the more traditional heretical categories? No, that's a very good question. The word used by the fathers of Trent for Protestant, they didn't call them Protestants. They call, I'll give you the Latin term they use, and you'll understand it right away because the English word is very close. The novatores, which you could try the innovators, those who are coming up with new ideas. Now, some of what the Protestants were saying was not new. So when Luther earlier on is appealing to a council being able to judge the Pope, okay, that's an old mis- that's an old belief we've seen before. The notion that the, the Calvinist notion, for example, that the church is made up of the elect who are chosen by God from all time, but it, it doesn't it, it's but it's a strictly spiritual reality that was taught by Wycliffe and Huss and then by Calvin. So that was not an innovation. Uh, but the complicated justification schemes of the Protestants were new. What Luther said about the sin nature persevering, what Luther said about the slavery of, of the will, he didn't believe in free will, he, called, he wrote a whole book called On the Will Not Being Free, that was relatively new. So, bit of old, bit of new. Thank you. And then Valerie on our panel Good evening, Dr. Papino, and uh, the rest of the panel and the participants. I really enjoyed the, the lecture this evening, but I have a question, and I'm very curious as to why the and um, one of the earlier councils you mentioned that uh, everything had seemed to be ratified and accepted by the Greeks and the Romans had had seemed to come to an, uh, an understanding. Right. Why were the monks not placed? under interdict for refusing to accept the word of the Greek hierarchy that the Romans were sincere. I thought that hierarchy takes precedence over religious orders, and it seems to me they were being disobedient in a certain regard. Well, I think you've answered your own question. But But there's a historical aspect to keep in mind also, and that is that the monks and the lay people back in the East Uh, constituted the overwhelming majority of sentiment over there, you see. And so they weren't going on out on a limb, and it would have been impossible for the emperor to send, you know, a troop of soldiers to all of the monasteries to read them an act of of, uh, dissolution or whatever. In fact, a leader can be very strong, but if the people don't want to follow him, there's not much he can do. And that ended up being the case with John VIII and his his patriarch. And then ultimately also, he, and I think his immediate successor, but three emperors down, and same thing with the patriarch, reneged on the union. So even the leadership reneged, and by the time the Turks take over, then it's game over. I see. And it'd be nice if things were that tidy, but in history, they seldom are. Wonderful question. Thank you, Valerie. I think we'll conclude with this question, which came in last week and a couple of times this week, which is what kind of resources would you recommend for further study on these topics? Okay. I'm going to show you a couple of things, but I'll show you more next week. Next week is going to be show and tell, partly because some of the books I want to show you are on reserve at the library where I work. And this is the week they're they're taking their exams and writing their papers. So I don't want to take any books from the library because they'll need them. <laughs> That's very kind. <laughs> yeah. But by, by next week, though, the books will be there and I'll, I'll bring some home. But still to this day, the great name in history of the councils 
I'll show you the title page of this little book that I found very helpful. As you can see, it's a very thin book, but this is a man who really knew. It's called Ecumenical Councils of the Catholic Church by Hubert Yedin. And if you get this little book, for any council, he gets straight to, he doesn't go into all the historical details, but he goes straight to the nub of things, and it's a great springboard. Now, there's only one drawback to this particular book I've been waving around, and that is that it was published before Vatican II, which means it doesn't have Vatican II. So it goes up to Vatican I, okay. And then for Vatican II, I don't think there's any human being who in a lifetime can read all of the literature written about Vatican II. About Vatican I, it would, a lifetime would suffice. About Trent as well. Vatican II, there's just too much. So for Vatican II, in fact, for Vatican II, it's interesting. I have to talk about the hermeneutic of Vatican II because there are several schools of thought to kind of summarize a little bit the different ideas. Some books about the Council of Vatican II, there are all sorts of... Unfortunately, most books written about Vatican II tend to be seedy. They're all about conspiracies and trying to divide things up into sides, the right side and the wrong side and so forth. I'm not saying that's an entirely wrong way to look at things, but it is not the cool-headed way that a historian looks at a thing. And as I said last time, because it was so close to Vatican II, it's very hard for anyone to look at it with a completely even gear. We look at Constance with kind of its um, county fair atmosphere, you know, and we, we can chuckle at it. So that's it, Yedin. Otherwise, there's any number of... I'll, I'll, I'll come up with some more books for, for next time. I'm sure Catholic Answers has come up with something for the, for the, you know, the, the lay reader. Maura seems to have a recommendation, which we'll take. Uh, uh, Dr. Rubin, I, I, I was going to ask you, what about Gardini that you mentioned for the, the Vatican II? Didn't you mention that before? Uh, uh, Guardini is a, is a liturgical scholar, no? Romano Guardini. It was not... Okay. Then I'm yeah, so that's, di that's different, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's um, Alberigo, Giuseppe Alberigo. I'll bring it, but I'll, there's some caveats about him, but he did do a good job. Yes, I'll bring That's a two-volume thing. I will show to you next time. It's the decrees of the ecumenical councils, and that has all of them. And facing page, the original language, including Armenian and Coptic and all these things, Arabic even, and English. And if you have those two volumes, it's a bit pricey. Um, or you could go to library and, and kind of look at it and decide if you want to buy it. Then you actually have the meat of all these councils. So if you want to get just break through the, the commentary and the interpretation and just read the documents that these councils wrote, there is a wonderful resource for that. And I'll show it to you next time. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, something to look forward to. And then as a teaser for next time, of course, as Dr. Pepino mentioned, we'll be focusing on Vatican I and II. So be sure that you join us next week. And yes, Dr. Pepino, did you? Yes, I see someone is mentioning Tanner oh. uh, in, in the comment. Tanner is the English version of Alberigo. So that, that's the, the one I'll show next time. I mean, he, there's one, they, they belong to the same. Uh, school and they do the same sort of thing. Yes. Dr. Pepino, would you close us in prayer this evening? Yes. In the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son of the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father and the Son. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co workers, and family members. 
To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.